Hello, hello. This is Nikki spilling the tea on all things entertaining. Today, our guest speaker is Bonnie Baker. She is a songwriter slash producer. She has wrote for some of the greats, Reba McIntyre, Rascal Flatts, Hunter Hayes, and the, it, the list goes on and on. How are you doing today, Bonnie? I'm doing great, Nikki. Thanks. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. I'm so honored that you have uh, uh, chosen to do a segment on my podcast. It, it's absolutely thrilling. Mm. Wow. I am. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I really am. Well, good. I mean, I hope you don't feel like, you know, I'm trying to analyze you or you're in a therapist's office. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Yeah. Okay. My first question is, where did you grow up? So I am originally from Texas. I uh, uh born in Pensacola, uh, Florida. My dad was in the Navy. Uh, so I was born uh, in the Navy hospital, but, but we moved back to Texas. My parents both born and raised in Texas. Okay. Uh, we, we moved back to Texas when I was, you know, quite young and lived all over East Texas, but mostly in the Nacogdoches area, which is kind of deep uh, piney woods of East Texas. My father, my father was a, um, a preacher. Uh, and so we, we kind of moved around in the East Texas area, lived in the Houston area a couple of times. And then we lived in the Austin area a couple of times. So those three areas, that triangle is where I spent most of my, um, growing up years. I finished college in Belton, Texas, which is a little bit above little north of Austin. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, Texas all over, but mostly East Texas as a kid. Okay. And um, can you describe yourself as a child? Hmm. I was a book reader. Um, my, my parents were very, very conservative and um, we, we did not have a television and uh, oh, ra wow. ra radio was not really allowed, um, you know, outside of church music. Um, that was my beginning in the music is, was being in church. I started playing the piano when I was five. Um, I think I started playing, you know, for the church by the time I was about 12. And because I, you know, it was kind of a quiet life. I was an only child until I was eight, um, reading books and playing music, writing, you know, short stories, writing in a journal, as it were, um, was kind of, you know, that was my life, was reading. Um, you know, I love to be outside. Uh, I was an adventurer, you know, um, but... I, I, I was very quiet in my room, kind of reading and making up stories and that kind of thing. And then as I got into teenage years, started sneaking some albums into my room. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I, that's where I discovered headphones, is that if I listened to everything on headphones that my parents didn't always know what was tucked under my bed and that kind of thing. So... Right. Um, you know, anytime I would have any money, I would 
put it into headphones or uh, my stereo setup was the first thing I would set up every time we moved, you know, I'd make sure that, you know, my tennis shoes and my stereo were set up is, is pretty much what I, uh, and then my books, I always had a desk full of books and that kind of thing. So just very, um, kind of a quiet, uh, childhood, uh, had siblings come along when I was about eight. Um, I'm now the oldest of four. So there were other siblings that came along, but those first few years were, uh, were pretty quiet. Yeah. I was an only child too. Uh, um, so I can definitely relate to that. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, actually, I actually had a lot of siblings, but um, I was adopted, so um, I was the only child in in my household, and I was uh, not like you. I was very, <laughs> I did read and I did play the piano, but right. I uh, definitely wasn't very a quiet child. <laughs> right, right. I talked a lot and got on a lot of people's nerves. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a. Uh, um that's to be expected as kids. We, uh, yeah. we, uh, it's good for us to, uh, find our own voice and find what we need to say. And sometimes for parents that can be a little overwhelming. And I have a, an adopted sister and brother both. So I kind of was on the other side of that. Uh, my, my middle sister, um, I will forever say she was a gift cause she, she came into my life first and, uh, uh, man, I wanted a little sister so badly, and uh, and here she was, and still to this day, she's just you know one of my favorite people. I I adore her. Yes, yes, I I, I can relate because <clears throat> though we were given up for adoption, the three youngest of us, which I was the oldest, uh, we were allowed to one stipulation because we were adopted into family, out to family. Mm-hmm. So the stipulation was that we got to see each other and grow up with each other. Oh, that's nice. Yes. So I have one sister that I'm, I'm extremely close with. She lives like three blocks away from me. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. yeah, I definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, she's kind of my person. Um, but okay. So I, I want to move on. I want to know, when did you realize, uh, uh, obviously you, you wrote songs and, and stories and, and you played the piano. So you had that background, but at what age did you decide, Hey, I'm taking off. I'm going to make a go of this songwriting. I'm going to Nashville. And what age did you decide to make that leap? And well, how did your family feel about it? Yeah, that's a, that's a, boy, that's a great question. Um, First and foremost, I guess I was about 14, 15 years old when I kind of started writing songs and I started noticing on albums it would have written by and then would have a name that wasn't always the artist. So Mm -hmm. I started understanding that there were people behind the songs that I was listening to. That was first. I actually went to college. I have a degree and um, in English and education like I have a double major and so I could teach school so I started teaching um, high school English and so I got out of college started started teaching and taught for you know about three years and was not 
I was not a happy camper. My early, <laughs> my early twenties, I was not living my best life. I was really not in the right place. And yeah. so honestly, I kind of went out into the world. I was living in the Austin area at the time and, you know, had a teaching job. You know, I got a job right out of college and uh, it, it, it should look amazing. And it's like you're you're making money and you're living on your own. And I just was not a happy, happy person. And so yeah. literally it took me a, a, a few years for me to understand that um, I, I just really wanted to be involved in music. And honestly, I made a trip to Nashville um, and, and came to Nashville to meet some people. I had been playing a show in Corpus Christi, Texas during the summer, like Monday through Friday, for happy hour at this hotel, I played the piano and just did covers every night of the week and it paid really well. And they put me up in a room and gave me a per diem for food and all that. Wonderful. And I was, I was really enjoying that. That summer was really cool. And I just enjoyed every day. Got, I got up and my job was to, you know, what am I going to play tonight and learn the songs and that kind of thing. And you had a passion. You had a passion. Yeah. Just all of a sudden I kind of had this spark and I had played in some bands. I played piano, you know, keys for some country bands because a, a cover band in Texas can do very well. Uh, I didn't enjoy that uh, vibe of playing in a band with other people, but the, but the sitting in a, a, hotel lounge playing covers every night, you know, Emmy Harris and Nancy Griffith and that kind of thing. Oh yeah. Re yeah. <laughs> really felt like my thing. And so during that summer, um, you know, George Strait is a Texas guy and they were doing a big um, album release photo shoot in Corpus Christi that summer. And one of the radio promotion guys for George Strait was staying at that hotel and he would come in every night and listen to me play. And by the second or third night, he kind of sent up a little note, you know, will you play this song or this song, which I would do. And then by right. the third or fourth night, he requested one of my originals. And so I just wrote him back and I was like, you know, you're so full of shit, you know, <laughs> like just go away. And, 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 you know, he, he wasn't, you know, he was very honest and said, no, I really like this song. And I think you wrote that song. And I said, I did. And so we got to talking and he said, if you ever want to go to Nashville, um, I will be happy to set you up to meet with Renee Bell, who was Tony Brown's assistant at the time, who was the producer for George Strait. And, oh, wow. and so, you know, as we all know, just getting, just getting someone to open a door for you or a window for you is just, it's worth its weight in gold. So yeah. I knew, I knew that it was a very big opportunity. So um, I came to Nashville with a friend of mine and we stayed right downtown and, and Nashville looked very different at that time. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I had my meeting with Renee Bell and I truly 
had been writing for a little while, but literally had very few songs and I had no way to record them. You know, I was, Mm -hmm. I was a struggling just out of college, you know, broke person. Right. (laughs) And uh, so none of them were recorded really. And the other way would be to just play them live, which as a piano player, you don't just throw a piano on your back and go off into the world. So I didn't play guitar. And so I was nervous. And uh, there's a place close to where the old MCA building, that was when George Strait was on MCA, which was not bought by Universal yet. Yeah. And uh, there was a bar called Bobby's Idol Hour. And uh, so I stopped in at Bobby's Idol Hour before my meeting. And uh, I was so nervous. I hadn't really had anything to eat. And so I had just a few too many. And so (laughs) I was a little tipsy. And uh, so then I walked down to my meeting. And to her credit, Renee Bell was just the kindest person. We sat and talked for a while. And I'm, I'm a pretty awkward, shy person when I meet someone. And uh, so we sat and talked for a while and I really didn't have a lot to say. And so finally she said, well, do you want to play me any songs? And I said, no, because honestly, they just suck. (laughs) (laughs) And she's not. Yeah. And so she like, she just laughed this really sweet laugh and said, hey, do you want to smoke a cigarette? And I was like, yes, I do. And so we raised the windows in her office. We had a cigarette together and she asked me, she's like, you're really nervous. And I said, yes. And she's like, well, how long have you been writing? And I told her, you know, off and on for a few years, but I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to record anything. And she just, she never once made fun of me. She never once made me feel like, I didn't belong there. She just was very, very kind and generous. And it just made me fall in love with Nashville because I I didn't know if I really needed to be in Nashville because I loved country music. I do love country music, but I love all kinds of music. But what I loved about Nashville was just an openness to someone who didn't know anything about what they were doing, but I loved it and I wanted to work hard at it. And so we sat and talked forever and she was like, I really encourage you just to keep coming back to learn the craft of songwriting. And uh, so I went back to Texas and literally started my, my journey of, of quitting my job and moving to Nashville. It took a little while, you know, I had to save some money and I had to kind of get a plan together and you know life always throws punches at you whenever you want to make a move like that but um slowly but surely I pulled it together and put all my stuff in a Chevy Cavalier and got to Nashville in 1992 and just you know I dug in and started wanting to really be a student of the craft of songwriting right right so after you got settled in Nashville, um, and, and I know this is probably, I mean, uh, a crazy, you've probably been asked this a million times, but I mean, what was your first, once you got settled and everything was, 
going, you were, you know, on your ride and things were going good. Was your first like song that actually hit? What song was that? And how long did it take to get to that point after settling? So got here in 92. I signed a publishing deal in 97. Uh-huh. And so it took about five years to get, you know, to that point. And I have always been the idea person. So I had this idea um, um, in my book um, from a story, my actually my middle sister that I was telling you about, something she said one day. Um, I wrote it in my book and kind of sketched out. And at the publishing company I was signed to, there was a writer named Connie Harrington who had had a ton of success in the Christian music world and she was writing in the country world and you know was just she's just one of the best ever and so because we were signed to the same company they asked her if she would write with me and she said yes and so um, one of the first times I went in to write with her um, I brought a title called Ordinary Life into the to writing session and I said you know my view of this is you know some people see ordinary life that's one thing, but other people find the extraordinary in the ordinary life. And that's when we wrote Ordinary Life. Uh, honestly, our publisher uh, didn't want to spend any money on a demo. He didn't really care for the song until other people started hearing it. And then he was like, well, maybe we should demo it. So we demoed a guy and a girl version of it. And then Chad Brock, who was on Warner Brothers at the time, mm-hmm. cut the song, and then it became his third single off of that. And it it you know it went to number one and number two and number three. We had three charts at the time, right? So when they had uh, when they had a celebration, they had a one two three party, and uh, so that was the first song. And I literally had been signed for about eight months when it got cut, and um, you know, probably less than a year when it became a single. And, you know, my journey is my journey and everybody has a different journey. But one of the things about my journey was that to have a song cut and a hit so quickly, I didn't have a lot of catalog. So it then took me like two more years to have my second song cut in a single, which was This Woman Needs for a band called Shadaisy. Um, oh, yeah. So, so that was 98, 99, 2000. In that kind of three-year span, I had Ordinary Life first, and then This Woman Needs. Had two songs on that album. And then, um, you know, moving into the 2000s, um, the My Sister, which was the Reba song. I had a Sarah Evans song called Tonight. Yeah. And... Um, um, so I'll, about every two years I would have some activity and uh, you know, I was never that writer that came in and had five number ones in a row. You know, it was, it was not quick and fast like that. It's always been kind of a slow journey. You know, every couple of years I'll have a song out that does okay. And then it takes another two years to, or three years to get back to that point. So Right. Those, those that first cut, I'm not going to say was effortless, but it was definitely right time, right place. You know what I mean? It just exactly happened that 
Chad needed a ballad. Buddy Cannon was cutting that album. He liked the song. Chad liked the song. And, um, you know, uh, they put it out as a single. It did well. And, and then, you know, and then I've moved around different publishers and stuff. But that was definitely, um, that was the beginning of, of my time here. Right. And um, I have a question because um, I have, no, I'm clueless. Okay, to, to how this business goes, the music industry. Um, whenever you know you write these songs, um, do you get to meet the artists, or you know, do you meet them after this? You know, they perform the song, or, or you know, record the song. How does it work? Do they have any input um, whenever you're in the songwriting process? Well, if they cut a song of yours and they've never met you, you're probably not going to meet them after. Like I've never met Sarah Evans and she, she cut a song called tonight. Now the Reba story was we, she cut the song, my sister and um, she's very close to her sister. So the day she was doing vocals, she invited my co-writers and I, which is Roxy Dean and Amy Daly to go to the studio and, and get to be there when she was doing her vocals. Her sister was there that day. So, it, oh. you know, and she wanted to know where the song came from and what the stories were behind it. And then we, you know, she, she introduced us to her sister and, you know, so that was a very cool day. Not every artist does that. Um, I had met Chad Brock because he was, you know, in the circle of people in the writing, you know, in the writers that were signed to the publishing company. Um, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus has cut a song and I've never met him. Uh, Rachel Platten, uh, I have a song on, on, on the album or the EP that has fight song on it. I, ha I have a song called uh, Lone Ranger and I actually wrote with her. And as my career has gone through the years I've been here more and more, we write with the artist. So I do know them. Um, I've written a lot with Hunter Hayes and I wrote a song called invisible with him. And so I definitely have been out on the road with him on the tour bus, writing songs in the back of the bus. Um, How cool. How cool. Yeah. So <laughs> today's world is we're a little more involved with the artists because uh, in, in 2021, people want their artists to have written the songs. And so it's a little more likely, you know, I wrote for years with Carly Pierce. Um, I don't have any, you know, songs on her records, but, you know, she and I definitely had a co-writing relationship. Um, you know, I've written with a lot of people that the songs don't make the album to Neil arts. I had a song with her, um, you know, so, in today's world, we pretty much know them because we've written with them. Um, I did, I have a song on a Brantley Gilbert record and I wrote the song with him. So I've met him that one time, but I've never, I've never been around him since then, you know? Right. Um, so it's a, it's different kind of for every song, every artist. Uh, I have a song on a Zella Day record, who's also a pop artist. And I wrote a song called East of Eden with her. I met her when she was like 14 years old. Uh, she was making trips to Nashville and, you know, her mom would drop her off and we would write songs and then, she, you know, her mom would pick her back up. And so it's different with everyone, but that's a great question. Um, 
usually if they cut a song because they've been pitched a song by your publisher, you don't end up meeting them because their life just kind of goes in one direction. And as a songwriter, we're kind of back in the room every day writing songs. So right. it's kind of two different worlds. Yeah. Um, I know in 2020, Lift Love Up came out by Katrina Elam. And um, did, did, was she part of the process too? Yes, she and I and Hunter Hayes wrote that song. And, um, you know, that was just in 2020. Um, I had been working on a documentary for a while and it was ready to come out. Mm -hmm. And it, it all got shelved because of the pandemic. Um, and so in 2020, if you notice, I put Lift Love Up in, uh, which that's Katrina's vocal on it, but she and I and Hunter wrote that. And then I put up, out a couple of other songs, Sad Girl and, uh, um, 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 oh man, I just lost the title. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I put a couple of songs out that I had actually just worked on in my room here where my little studio space is mm -hmm. because I just needed something to work on to mm -hmm. keep, keep me sane. Um, yeah. th those are not on any label or anything. They're just independently put out by myself. So, um, yeah, thanks for noticing that song. It's, 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 it was, a it was a late night songwriting session with Hunter Hayes and, uh, um, uh, Stevie wonder had been working with Hunter and he had called Hunter and left him a message and Hunter was sitting there and he was like, guys, listen to this. And it was Stevie Wonder, like, Hunter, this is Stevie. And I just, you know, want to talk to you about, you know, this or whatever. And of course, Katrina and I were like, what right. is that? <laughs> so anyway, at the end of this message, Stevie Wonder says, and Hannah, you always got to lift love up, you know, and it's just like we it was oh. midnight or later and we were all tired and and and, you know, we didn't have a song. And so I was like, that's a song right there. You know, you wow. got even when everyone else is, you know, feeling like they're on the ground, you got to lift love up. So that's where that song came from. And so then I just the demo of it with Katrina's vocal on it. I was like, you know, I just want to put this out in the world. So, you yeah, know, definitely. You gave me goosebumps telling me that story. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been such a sweet, you know, I've never met Stevie wonder. He wouldn't know me. And, right. uh, but he really touched me that night. You know, it's just like, um, the world that we're living in, we really just, we just need to lift love up, you know, constantly as, and, and there's a line in the song that says, you know, you're, you're never higher than you reach down to, to lift love up, you know? And it's just like, that is such a truth. I think in 2020 and 2021, you know? Oh yeah. Cause yeah. Cause we're still feeling the effects of 2020. I mean, it's not gone away. Um, no. So mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Um, I, I just, that's just an incredible, incredible story. Uh, what, I mean, what would you give a current or, you know, wannabe songwriter advice? What would you say to them? 
You know, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, I, I do some workshops. I did one Saturday with American songwriter magazine and I have another one scheduled for March and then one scheduled for April. And then I have a group of friends, the collective that we've been doing some workshops called trust the process. And that's a question that a lot of people ask, right? What advice would you give to new songwriters now? Right. And the first thing is study the music business inside and out, both financially, emotionally, just where it is as a business, Mm -hmm. um, streaming, digital platforms, all of the things that are in place now. It's not the same world as it was in 1997 or 2010 or 2015. The world has changed. The world of songwriting has changed. Right. Um, just to give you an example, um, on one of my last statements, I had a song that had 678,000 spins, one song, 678,000 spins. Wow. So for context, back in the day when we sold albums, if I had a song and I was a third writer on it, and it sold 678,000 units, you know, albums or singles mm -hmm. or whatever, a physical copy that would have made me as a writer about $20,000. All right. But in 2021, 678,000 spins of a song earned me $58. Oh, how tragic. So our world has changed. Now the thought is, each one of those spins is one spin, one listener. And that's why Spotify, Pandora, Apple, Tidal, they all pay so little is because each spin is one person listening one time. Right. So I get it. I get the math. Mm -hmm. But I also know that the collection of monies has not caught up to the value that songwriters should have. Now they're trying, they're trying legally, yeah. they're trying to get, you know, the payment system in place that will value songwriters and original content. So we're getting there. It's right. take, it's taking seven, 10, 12 years to get us there. So those of us in the middle of this just have to live with what our senators and our representatives get done in Washington because the law of the land is what we look to, 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 uh, to support us and to uh, give us the monies that we feel like we are entitled to because exactly. without the music, there is no music business period. Right. You can sell all the t-shirts you want and all the coffee mugs and all the hats. But if you do not have creative content, you don't have a music yeah business. So I am not angry at these platforms, but I do encourage everyone to study mm -hmm. what it means to put a song out on Spotify, Apple music, etc. Right. To know the amounts of money you're going to make. There's also money to be made in sync, putting a, a song in film. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just got a payment because, you know, Peloton bikes used a song in, you know, for one of their, products that they put out, 
you know, they, they loaded up with some music and, and, you know, a song was used in that. I've had songs used by the NFL on Sundays for a football game. Um, you know, you can have song usages all over the place. Whereas when I started out in 97, that wasn't the case. It was either radio or nothing. You either had a song on a record that paid you mechanicals or you got paid by your PRO, which is a performing rights organization. So as a new writer, study where the money comes from, because you can do it as a hobby, but if you want to do it as a career, you've got to know where your money's coming from. Secondly, I would say first, study the craft of songwriting. Know what you're up against, okay? You can't just throw together a song and expect people to listen. You've got to really study your heroes. Study what makes, you know, uh, uh, Chris Christopherson who he is as a writer. Study your heroes and know why they are so highly regarded. You know, if you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, look at his lyrics, read his lyrics, look at his top line, look at his production, know what you need to know to be good at what you're doing. And then study the, the, the financial piece of it, because you don't want to do it for free. Everybody starts out. Oh, I'll be glad to do it for free. No, you won't. You know, (laughs) eventually that'll get old. Well, because, you know, as a songwriter, I still have a 17 year old that needs clothes and food and a house and, you know, right. they're about to go to college and they need college money. So I have exactly. to exist in the world just like everyone else is if I were a banker or a lawyer. You know, I have bills to pay. So I have to be connected to the money piece of it. So study the job of songwriting and know what that means to you. Somebody else is not going to come to your house and teach you that. So study you know, if it means taking, taking some workshops and learning, getting good at what you, you know, what you do. And then also I advise you to know what it is that you do. Be honest with yourself. If you're not the best singer in the world, which I am not, then I always hire, you know, a great singer to sing demos or whatever, like know what you do, know what you don't do and be honest with yourself. So, you know, I could, I could go on quite a bit, but that's the first things to start is, you know, study the business. Yeah, that's definitely a great start uh, for all the listeners out there that might be uh, looking into that uh, profession. Um, I know um, there are just too many uh, songs that you, you, you've wrote or you country artists that you've dealt with. Um, uh, But who, can you say who is the easiest, who is the most favorite out of all the artists that you have uh, wrote for? Wow. That's a really, really, really good question. Um, I will say that Hunter Hayes and I have a, a really, you know, you would look at us on paper and not really think we have a lot in common. You know, I'm a lot older than him and I'm not really in his band, but Hunter has been somebody that I felt like, we connected on a lot of levels. Um, just that really singular focus on trying to be really good at what we do. Um, I interviewed him the other day in a little segment and he said something about, I was always like a cannonball coming into a writing session that 
Uh, Once I'm there, I'm there. You know, it's just like, you know, I don't check my phone 50 times and I, I walk into a session with tons and tons of song ideas and notes and thoughts of, you know, where we want to go. But I find that he is one of those that he loves that he doesn't sit and check his phone all day. When we get into a song, right. we are absolutely laser focused on the baseline and the melody and the lyric. And do we have the hook, right? Um, so I enjoy working with him, but I could tell you tons of stories uh, about, you know, just artists that I love working with that you don't know their name yet. And, you know, I hope someday you do, um, you know, Nashville and, and really all over LA, New York, London. Um, I, I have the just joy of being able to work with a lot of people all over the world, but there, there's, there's like a new artist writer that uh, is from Nova Scotia. Her name is Michaela Lynn absolutely adore writing with her. She reminds me of like an early Trisha Yearwood. And I just, I just can't wait for the world to hear her songs. And uh, that's just one of the new people that I'm writing with right now. And I just find her to be a quality person, quality, quality artist, writer, creator, and uh, um, just so easy to get along with. I also work with a, a producer, that uh, has a studio on the east side of town. His his name is Ryan Peterson. Ryan is just quality, quality. He he grew up in L.A., worked on Glee, you know, as a vocal producer. Uh, he now is working on Riverdale, the TV show. And I just can't tell you enough. He's just one of the easiest creators I've ever worked with as far as, like, the quality standard that he has you know, that he's trying to hit every day is very high. He's easy to get along with. He's funny. He always makes those dramatic moments feel um, like they're doable because he's going to, you know, he's going to crack a joke or something to, to cut the tension. <laughs> and, uh, and he's also always ready for that one more edit when I'm like, okay, just this last little thing. Um, I think maybe this could be better. So, so, I'm going to say Michaela Lynn and Ryan Peterson, maybe two names that people would have to look up to know, but I'm, I'm surrounded by just incredible songwriters and artists and producers and creators that um, I could go all day and tell you um, how much I enjoy writing and working with them. Okay. I only have two more questions for you. Okay. Um, this one is, uh, you know, I just, I want to know, would you rather write with co-writers and bounce ideas off of, or would you prefer going solo? I prefer to write with people. Um, I, I mentioned a documentary earlier that is, um, it's called Invisible. It is about gay women in the music business. And I went through a really rough period of time during the making of this documentary and, uh, because of that, I wrote a solo song in it called Dry County. And, you know, every once in a while, I have something really important to say, and I want to do it on my own. But 98% of the time, I want to write with other people 
I love great top line, you know, people that have great melodies. And um, because I usually am the concept lyric person, but I also love uh, a singer that has great phrasing and just really has their own voice. And then I love to write with great producers that are very creative in how they make things sound. So my perfect day is walking in with um, an artist who's also a great top line person. Not all artists, they can sing, but sometimes they can't really write a melody. But some of the uh, some of the artists that I work with are just incredible melody people. So I, I prefer to to co-write with people. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And where can people find you? Do you have a website? I do. It's just www.bkermusic.com. B-K-E-R-music, M-U-S-I-C.com. Um, it's just my last name, Baker. But I, I, after I did the documentary, I needed to kind of reclaim my name. And uh, I worked with a graphic designer. And I just wanted... I wanted my own identity outside of my family name. So BKER became kind of uh, my logo. So BKERmusic.com. Come find me there. You can communicate with me there. I put up news, but I also have my, you know, most of my discography is listed. Uh, I talk about workshops that you can do. Uh, in the last year, uh, I've started teaching at MTSU in the commercial songwriting department and then also doing um, the workshops that I've been doing because I want to really lift up a female songwriters, producers, artists, and then B, our next generation. I feel like in the TikTok world, the craft of songwriting is still very important. And I want in 50 years from now for us to look back and know that songwriting and the craft of songwriting was still very, very, very important to the health and well-being of the music business. So I kind of take that on as a uh, what my mission in life is, is to teach people how to live the life of a songwriter, both healthy and sane. It's important. It's important. Definitely. Well, I, if you don't have anything else to share, um, uh, I'm going to say farewell. I'm going to say thank you. And I was so honored to hear about your journey and the field of the profession of songwriting. Um, I just, can't thank you enough for being on this podcast um for all you listeners out there please check bonnie baker out she's extraordinary she's done a lot um and check her website out and share subscribe review do whatever you like but be respectful kind and show some love in this crazy world we're in right now I appreciate it so much, Nicole. I I just appreciate the day. And um, um, I look forward to getting to know you as we move through this world. 2021, here we are. Yes, we are. are. (laughs) Me too, definitely. You have a Bonnie. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. You have a wonderful day. Okay.